Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Episode 2, The End of Scarcity. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Steve, one of the things I really appreciated about your book was, in particularly the early chapters, your way of encapsulating things that I had thought about, but you'd put a better frame, a better, a better lens to it. In other words, you'd, you'd described what had happened, and this isn't a book about history lessons, um, nor is this podcast about history. But uh, this chapter really nailed it for me. It's a kind of end of scarcity. So that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. we got a great guest, uh, Seth Godin, uh, who will join us uh, a bit later talking about the inspiration you took from his work and, and uh, you know, the, talking about bringing that into the, the current state and the state of retail. Let's, let's jump right into, in, into this concept of the end of scarcity. Take us, again, we're not a history session or a history podcast, but take us back to retail you and I have been in the retail game for 20, 25 plus years. It's sitting today some days. It's hard to remember what it was like 20 years ago, but but take us through it and all the way through your, your ideas around this um, end of scarcity. Sure. Well, I, I do think it was about 20 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, that things really started to change. If you go back, say, to the late 90s, for the most part, when it came to retail, I don't know the exact numbers, but I want to say something like 98% of all retail was done in a physical store. Hmm. Some mail order, right? Yeah. Yeah. Flea markets, whatever. But for the most part, retail was a brick and mortar location. That was one of the first things that started to change, albeit slowly, was largely by virtue of e-commerce that there started to be access to products essentially anytime, anywhere, anyway. So if you think about choice, because I think that's that's the main thing is, is the expansion of choice, the abundance of choice. Mm. In retail, if you wanted to buy, pick whatever, dishwasher, sweater, you had to go to a store. If you were lucky, you lived in a place that had a lot of stores. If you lived in a more remote rural area, you didn't have so many or you had to drive a long way. And you could shop whenever they happened to be open and you had whatever selection they happened to have. And you would hope that they had it in your size, color you liked, et cetera. And so choice access to product was very constrained. Secondarily, the information about which products to buy was pretty constrained as well. You learned about products through TV advertising, maybe a magazine ad, talking to your friends, the sales associate who you had to go see in person, yeah. et cetera. And, and uh, you learned about, and you learned what they wanted to teach you, you know, you, in all those mediums, right? It was, the, it was framed in such a way that um, even in the catalog, but even on the show floor, it's here's what we want you to know about the product. And you didn't have a lot of recourse other ways. You had maybe consumer reports or magazines, but, but by and large, as you say, um, and it's it, it, just listening to it, it, it strikes me funny because it, it, the world is of retail is so different now, but it's hard to imagine what it was before, but it's not that long ago. No, it's really not. And if you think about, uh, you know, obviously Amazon is, is the big dog when it comes to e-commerce, but, you know, Amazon really didn't start to break beyond books and music to any significant degree until about 15 years ago. So yeah, right. it's, it's, right. it's pretty new. So this idea of what made for an acceptable purchase was largely determined by the choices you had in your town. And as you say, the information that was largely controlled and kind of one dimensional, 
Um, because the other thing that started to change by virtue of social media and so forth was connection, right? Your network, uh, we're going to talk to Seth later, your tribe, which yeah. phrase he really coined, you, yeah. it was pretty small, right? It was your friends, family, maybe people you went to church with or worked with or whatever. And, you know, suddenly as time went on, you started to have access to pricing information and mm-hmm. reviews and you could mm-hmm. show text an outfit to your friends or what have you to get their feedback. And so this whole world of influence and connection radically expanded. And so, um, and then, you know, there's some other things too. I think the way, you know, I sometimes talk about cheap was also scarce where you certainly had discount stores and outlet stores 20, 25 years ago, but the explosion of physical choices in terms of off price stores and so forth, uh, was quite dramatic. So you just had a lot more places to go to get sharply priced product. But certainly the internet allowed you not only to get access to to cheaper products, but generally speaking, the effect of the internet over time and e-commerce has been to push prices down and compress margins. So you really have this this world of pretty scarce access and connection and information and so forth, which largely determined which retailers were successful. And so much of that was about physical presence and how that retail concept was manifested in a physical space. And then over the last 20 years, so much of that has been, you know, so much of that scarcity is basically evaporated. And so mm-hmm. really at the heart of this book is that, uh, and we'll talk to Seth about this, is that even very good is not good enough anymore because you just have so much availability of alternative information and choice. So why should you settle for what happens to be in your store or happens to be the thing you can buy between noon and six on a Sunday or, or what have you? So it's just radically shifted the basis of competition. I saw that start to accelerate um, 15, 20 years ago, but I certainly think um, largely by virtue of the ubiquity of smartphones, which kind of puts anybody's brand on, on your person anywhere you happen to be. I mean, the last seven, eight, nine years, this is all just accelerated. So, you know, it's interesting listening to that background because I think sometimes about the tyranny of choice. In other words, retailers or merchants or consumers who are overwhelmed by too much choice. Do you think that somehow we've gone from one guardrail to the other, that we've gone from a world where you have very constrained, limited choices, and we'll talk about um, in which which different ways, almost too much choice? And, And I'm not sure if it's paralyzing per se looking at retail sales, but it it does make consumers less about trying to find things and more about trying to make decisions about the things and places they shop. Well, one of the quotes um, that I've got in the book is from William Simon, I believe, who said, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Hmm. And I think this it's very easy to be overwhelmed by choice and information and just all the distractions that we have from from life and social media and the news cycle and all those kinds of things. So I do think, for sure, consumers can be overwhelmed by choice. And I think part of, or at least one strategy for being remarkable, is to be that trusted source for information or curation. Mm-hmm. You know, you come to me as restoration hardware, let's say, because you know that we have assembled the sort of stuff that you need and presented in an environment with the sales help and the overall experience you want. So I think uh, there's some differences, I think, between fundamentally uh, when you're on a discovery mission versus a pure search mission. And from a search standpoint, 
there are lots of tools out there to hopefully navigate you to find what you want or, um, you know, algorithms that present you with those. But I think the, the brands that are really remarkable oftentimes become kind of that default choice because you know they're going to have or you have a high confidence that they're going to have what you want and they've made the choice easier for you. Well, I, it's interesting because I think about the perception of choice on on big websites, and sometimes it's a perception of choice. They might have a million products, but they there is ways you just mentioned it, the algorithm advertising behind it that actually shows consumers the curated look at choice. And you know, so these sites that are vast, really, the challenge there is is being found. And as a retailer, how do you present that in such a way that that you can form a, a, a merchandising strategy other than we list everything. Right. And, and, you know, I think that's, that's, you know, when I, I was walking through, um, I was walking through Neiman Marcus at Hudson Yards uh, back in January. Unfortunately, I, I've heard they're, they're exiting that, uh, that property. I looked at their assortment and, and certainly what struck me was their assortment was unique. They had unique things, but is unique the same as, as, as this addressing, the idea that um, uh, you know that, that the scarcity is back. In other words, you can only find it here. These are very unique things. Is that a way for merchants to address this everything, everywhere, all the time dilemma? Well, I think that that's part of it. I mean, you know, the Hudson Yard story for for Neiman Marcus is is kind of complicated, but I think, um, and I'll get back to the main part of your question. But I think what's happened with a lot of retail is that they're delivering a very refined or updated version of what they've been doing, which in some cases has been pretty successful. Certainly Neiman Marcus until fairly recently was quite successful, Mm -hmm. but they're just presenting a slightly different version of something that's pretty good. And I think that's just harder and harder as competition mounts and as consumers have other choices and, and distractions. So, um, I, I think it's a challenge, but you know, at the heart, whether it's Neiman Marcus or anybody else, I think what you really have to figure out is which customer and which purchase occasions are at the center of your bullseye. And then what is that story that you want them to tell about your brand to, to literally remark upon it? And I think what's happened with a lot of bigger retailers is as they get bigger, uh, it's just hard to maintain that specialness. You end up kind of just polishing <laughs> what you already have. And that doesn't necessarily attract newer customers. It might be safe and familiar for your current customers, but it's not necessarily really taking you to the next, the next level. And I certainly think of Neiman Marcus and a lot of folks in the more kind of traditional luxury business or department store business or whatever you want to call it um, are having a challenge breaking into that next level aside from Neiman's particular issues with all the debt they had. Let's talk about convenience, uh, which you talk about not being scarce anymore. I, I can count on uh, many, many hands. The number of times I see we're going to be more convenient in a business plan around how fast the consumer will get the product or when they get it. But it does seem that there's been an acceleration in terms of either expectation or using convenience as in defined as same day delivery as a redefining of your positioning. So years ago I was asked on a panel, you know, is same day delivery a niche or is it, is it mainstream? And, and at that time I thought it was a niche because at that time I thought it came with a premium 
cost. But more and more retailers, I talked to one this week for um, for the Voice of Retail podcast, is is looking at same day, and from their perspective, they think that makes them remarkable. Now they they also have a remarkable assortment, and they have other elements, but they particularly think that's going to make them remarkable. And of course, the fact that they can execute it flawlessly will make them super remarkable. What are your thoughts on that? That that this you know this convenience still has room to grow in terms of when you get your product in the in the new world. Well, convenience is certainly one of those things that's been redefined a lot over the last 10 or 15 years. You know, I think convenience is one of those charged words, right? Because convenience for me may be different than convenience for you. So if I'm trying to put together, um, you know, redecorate a room, it might actually be convenient for me. And I'll use an example from, from Dallas where I live. It might be convenient for me to drive a half an hour to the huge Nebraska furniture mart. Because I'll feel like that will pay off because I'll be able to buy everything I want or see everything I want all in one place. And it will save me the time of running around to a bunch of different places. But I certainly think generally the way we talk about it today, particularly with Amazon and a lot of the same day delivery stuff is how quickly can you get me the product as opposed to my going to get it. The unfortunate thing is there's a little bit of a race to the bottom here because Mm -hmm. Amazon and Walmart and others keep raising the bar on uh, same-day delivery or next-day delivery. And in many cases, the consumers don't necessarily need it. But if you're going to make it available to me, I'll pick it. That comes at, in most cases, very little cost to the consumer and quite a lot of cost to the retailer. So, it's, actually some, it, it, it's, a, it's actually something, if you remember, Sucharita brought up on our first episode, and she talked about, listen, you don't necessarily need a nail clipper today. Um, and that there was a, in her mind, and, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, there was kind of a reckoning coming. In other words, same day becomes an artificial construct of I'm going to make myself different or attempt to be remarkable by getting it to you uh, in an incredibly fast amount of time, whether you need it or not, whether that's a true benefit or not. What do you, what do you think about, you know, there's some things that are clearly a benefit. I can get it same day. Sometimes it's around occasion. Sometimes it's around a particular commodity, but is it retailers who are striving to craft something? Are they chasing, is it a red herring? Are they chasing something that's really not as meaningful as we think it is? I would say generally, yes. I think that there is a bit of this belief that if you don't keep pace with Amazon or let's say Walmart, Mm. that you are likely to lose market share. And I think Sucharita is right. There's a little bit of this default to kind of upping the ante uh, but it is really not something that is going to give you a real advantage. I mean, to me, not to be too much of a literalist about it, but the idea of being remarkable is certainly the idea of being very unique and distinctive, mm-hmm. But which has always been a good idea, right? But the thing that is really newer, though, you know, as we'll hear, Seth, Seth has been on this for more than uh, or close to 20 years, but, but the idea of remarkable is really that story that will get spread, that will get shared. And I think it's pretty hard to think, well, I'm going to talk a lot about getting a product that I could have gotten delivered yesterday, you know, like Mm -hmm. a bottle of shampoo or something that I happen to get today. I mean, it's almost more remarkable because it just seems kind of silly. But if Amazon tees that up in the cart, I might, I might pick it. 
Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know. I think, I think mm-hmm. what to me is really important is when you think about the customers that you care the most about that are going to drive your current and future profitability, you understand those things that are table stakes. In other words, if you don't offer them, you're likely to be at a significant disadvantage. Um, and you just kind of have to do those in many cases. Uh, but more importantly is to think about how do you amplify the wow? You know, what is that thing that people will really talk about? And I, I think for the most part, it's hard for me to imagine over the long term that delivery speed is going to be the thing. But certainly it's been reframed mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, 20 years ago where, you know, I, I worked in some catalog businesses and <laughs> six, six to eight weeks. Yeah. And, and, yeah. um, you know, you charge an extra $30 to get it to you in three or four days. And so shipping and handling, the, shipping and handling included, exactly. like, you well, could actually get money for handling products. You mentioned those days. Well, we, we, when I worked at, um, when I worked with Land's End, yeah. we made money on delivery, right? The margin right. in it right now, it's, it's a huge cost center. So certainly that's changed a lot. But I think as we think about the last couple of years and kind of where we're going, um, I think it's a little bit of a race to the bottom. And I think at some point to suit your readers part, there has to be a reckoning because you're not charging the customer anymore for it. In some cases you're just moving around market share because so many categories are pretty flat, frankly. Mm -hmm. And the retailers costs just keep going up and there's also the whole kind of sustainability issues and, and all sorts of things that I think are are problematic that at some point need to be addressed in a pretty significant way. All right. Well, let's bring on Seth. Uh, Seth Godin, uh, seven thousand blog posts, nineteen books. Um, let's let's hear what uh, and 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 a personal friend and and uh, I, you know in some ways collaborator at least at the at the thought leadership perspective. Uh, so let's have a listen. Seth, welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast. You you probably rank as our guest that needs an introduction the least. But but for listeners who know more of you than about you. Talk about your personal and professional journey, your podcasts, your, your books, uh, and how you and Steve know each other. My life changed outside a little uh, rundown building on the campus of Tufts University in 1979 or 80. Steve and I were both hired for the same job without us having met each other in advance. And there was only one job, but we both got it. And we became business partners. We built the largest student-run business in the country at the time. And um, then he went to the wrong business school and I went to a different business school and our paths have diverged but remained intricately related. Uh, As listeners to this podcast know, Steve is a titan of retail (laughs) and uh, I shifted over to entrepreneurship, technology and media. Um, He was, uh, has been accompanying me on this journey virtually, spiritually, and in person now and then. Um, and every chance I get uh, to talk to him, it makes me smarter. <laughs> well, um, I, w- I would say the same thing, um, but thank you very much for that. So one of the things I wanted to start out with, I went, I went back um, about a week ago, I guess, and listened to or watched your TED Talk uh, from, I guess, 2003, which was really about purple cow and the idea that, or the concept that ideas that spread win. I'm, I'm curious not to spend too much time on history, but I'm curious how you came to those views and, and maybe a little bit about how you've evolved your thinking since. Okay. Interesting historical aside, they didn't tell anybody in 2003 in Monterey that they were filming the Ted talks and they had never been seen by anyone. 
So if you look at any of those old talks, you're seeing people who didn't know that more than 300 people would watch them for their brand. But I was still nervous. I mean, the vice president was sitting in the third row and stuff. So uh, it was a, a fraught thing. I've given much better talks in that one, but I'm still proud of it. The, the evolution of it's this. In 1983, uh, I got a job for which I was dramatically underqualified, spending the money of uh, Harvard Endowment and many other investors at a company called Spinnaker Software. We had millions and millions of dollars to spend on advertising. The people from the U.S. Open were whining and dining me to run ads in their uh, programs and whatever. Um, and what I learned from that process is that with very few exceptions, big advertising didn't work like it had worked for all those decades before. And that spending money to interrupt people, to take their attention away without any recourse on their part, so that they would buy a new product, uh, was a fool's errand. And it just didn't work. And shortly after that, I, I met Jay Levinson and actually uh, persuaded him to do a whole bunch of books outside of his first guerrilla marketing book. And he and I wrote four or five of them together. And that made me think even more deeply about what did it mean to be a marketer and fortunately for my pioneering thinking, the world changed at the same time. And it changed because we went from three TV channels to a billion TV channels. And we, it changed from four business magazines to anyone with a blog. And as a result, attention became a totally different kind of transaction than people had been used to. And I had been seeing and noticing that businesses big and small were having an impact for different reasons. And then uh, in uh, the early part of the 2000s, my dear friend Lionel Poulain, the most famous baker in Paris, died in a tragic helicopter crash with his wife. And I wanted to dedicate a book in his memory. And I didn't have a book because I had sort of stopped writing books. And so I wrote Purple Cow in, in sort of a, a, a fugue state. And... Uh, that book was inspired by him and dedicated to him. He built a multi, multi-million dollar bakery in France, which is not an easy place to build a big bakery, um, with not one dollar of advertising money. And so I conceived of the concept of the purple cow, which is building into the product or service, building into the retailer, the engine of its spread that people talk about it not because you have a gimmick and not because you run ads, but because they want to talk about it. And that has become, I think, one of the underpinnings of all marketing for the last 15 or 20 years. But it's fair to say it's not just marketing, right? It's, it's really the inherent business concept that needs to be remarkable, right? Well, I define marketing as anything you do that interacts with the market. And so the way you send memos to other people in your office is not marketing, but just about everything else is because the way your, your hours of operation, whether you're dumping effluent in the river, your hiring practices, uh, the way your organization appears to the world, your pricing, all of these things are marketing decisions. And I can call marketing anything I want, and that's what I'm calling it. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, one of the things that, that struck me when I was going back and, and not only looking at the TED Talk, but reviewing Purple Cow, which, of course, I shamelessly stole from in my book. Um, so your commission check is in the mail. Uh, but, you know, I was working at Sears at the time, 
And it was becoming increasingly clear to me, you know, maybe for some complicated reasons, but in particular, what, what Sears was trying to do was really sell a lot of stuff to a lot of people, uh, which I think you talk about as, as being the, you know, focusing on the peak of the bell curve and making average things for average, average people. I know you're not a retailer per se, but I'm curious what you've seen in terms of the evolution of retail and, and perhaps a little bit about what uh, retailers need to think about doing now to be more remarkable. Well, you know, I'm stealing most of your stuff. Retail isn't dead. Boring retail is dead. And what does it mean to be boring? You and I almost worked together when uh, I tried to persuade Sears to do a series of books around craftsman tools and with and uh, some of the other iconic things that they owned, but it would have required turning something like craftsmen from these are pretty good tools for pretty good craftspeople to this is a singular, peculiar, idiosyncratic item with a voice. And that's just not the way mass marketers think. Ketchup doesn't have a voice. And, you know, Heinz probably hit its peak when they let Carly Simon sing for them. But even so, they have fought at every turn to make ketchup not uh, this widespread, ubiquitous, boring thing. And as a result, salsa outsold ketchup last year. What retailers have to figure out is, would we miss you if you were gone? And in the age of Amazon and in the age of we can't go outside without a mask on, more and more people are saying, no, I wouldn't miss you if you were gone. Yeah. And as soon as they say that, you're gone. So do you, do you think it's, I mean, I guess having worked for a couple of really big retailers and then consulting to some, one of the things I see is that even if you can get leadership to understand that even very good is bad and they really need radical change, their sheer size and protection, I guess, uh, defending the status quo is often what keeps them stuck. Do you agree with that fundamental premise? And I guess more importantly, what should they do differently? I'm going to twist the premise a little bit, which is this. The kind of people who are in the building are there because they chose to be. Whether they're a clerk or a product manager or a line manager or whatever they're called, they're there because they signed up for it. You know, if we pick a different industry, why is it that uh, Google, with two employees, beat Random House or Encyclopedia Britannica in the race to organize the world's information? Those two other organizations had plenty of people who were smart enough, who had the same mission, who could easily have hired two programmers, and they didn't. Because you don't go to work at Random House because you want to build a website. You go to work at Random House because you like what it means to be in the book industry. Yeah. And the problem with most retailers is not that they are too big. In fact, the number of key employees per dollar of sales in retail is very, very low. It's super highly leveraged. But in fact, the problem is that's not what they signed up for. They didn't sign up to innovate. They didn't sign up to be peculiar or idiosyncratic. They signed up because they liked the life of being a retailer. So so do you think, or can you point to maybe any large brands that you think have done a really good job of of being remarkable despite their size or, or culture? There are lots of ways to be remarkable. There are lots of ways to engage with the network effect. The, the essence of the network effect is to build something that works better if your peers use it. And so make a list of every smart thing Microsoft has done in the last 20 years 
every one of them is that. That Word worked better if your Word Perfect friends converted to Word. And so you did Microsoft's marketing for them. When Microsoft comes out with a video game system or tries to build something on the internet, if they do it right, it works because people talk about it. And if they do it wrong, like Bing, it's because it's embarrassing to talk about it. Why would you try to persuade someone to switch from Google to Bing? What's in it for you? Mm-hmm. And the answer is nothing. And, you know, so Balmer destroyed billions of dollars of opportunity by refusing to understand the power of innovation and remarkability in the network effect. So if I think about uh, what has worked and what hasn't worked at different levels of retail, let's think about what Blake built at Tom's Shoes. So the original conception of Tom's Shoes, the buy one, give one, was Blake understood that there was a small group of women, mostly women, fewer than a million for sure, who had the following attributes. They wanted to be fashion forward, and they didn't have a lot of money, and they weren't eager uh, to be super edgy. And what Tom did was, what Blake did was he put Tom's logo on the outside of a pair of $85 espadrilles. Now, at the time, nobody was putting a logo on the outside of fancy shoes ex- with the exception of the red sole of um, Louboutin. Uh, Louboutin. Why would you do that? Well, you would do that because if your friends saw that you were wearing a pair of shoes that had a logo on them, they might ask about the logo, probably slightly snarkily because you were outside of their comfort zone. And then you would turn to them and say, I'm a better person than you because I bought these shoes before you did. And because now there's some kid in Ethiopia who's also wearing espadrilles and that's because I'm a better person than you. Now, I'm, you know, using different language than uh, Blake probably intended, but that was the intent. That's what you were paying for when you bought a pair of these shoes. And so it became easy to spread the idea because every party involved benefited. But then in their effort to grow, he came out with coffee. And coffee doesn't work that way because you can't put a logo on a cup of coffee. And because it was different to talk about coffee what, some kid in Ethiopia now has a cup of coffee because we're drinking this coffee? None of it aligned, and it wasn't easy to talk about. And, you know, so when we think about the growth of, for example, outlet malls, many of which, as you know, are sort of fake, um, the act of shopping in a scrum, of having a story to tell about your hard-earned prize, that's why they grew not because you could buy a sweater for less, but because you got a story for free when you bought the sweater. So I'm wondering, and, and Michael, feel free to jump jump in here, but I just I guess one more question. Um, so do you think it's inherently difficult, particularly if you're a public company, to scale beyond a certain point? Because oftentimes what, what got you to be remarkable in the first place isn't what it, what's going to get you to be that $500 million, billion, $2 billion business. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. You know, the people who own public companies are the lowest common denominator. They can buy and sell on a moment's notice. They're short-term profit seekers. And p- trying to please those people inevitably leads to a Schumpeter-like cycle of creative destruction because lazy short-term capitalists who at public companies will always chase easy wins until there are none left, and then they will crash and burn. And there are ways around it. You know, when I was at Yahoo, we were public, and I said 
to the uh, co-founder, here's what I'd like to do. I would like to cut my salary by 90%. Let me keep my stock options. Thank you very much. I will move across the street to a cheap little place. Just give me two other people to work with. And we will bring you the businesses that you are now busy buying for a billion dollars a piece. And it seemed to me like a totally sensible thing for them to do because the kinds of businesses that Yahoo was buying at the time had no real customer base or code. They were just really cool concepts. And I knew how to make those. And um, Jerry turned to me and said, well, I can't do that. And I said, why? He said, because if I did that, everyone else would want to do that too. (laughs) Which seems like a really stupid reason not to do it. But leaving that part aside, what he was actually saying is the public markets don't want me to, to do that. What the public markets want me to do is continue issuing the stream of press releases. But my belief is the thing that got you where you are is not that you opened 100 stores in one day or 1,000 stores in one day. What got you where you were are is you had one store that worked and you figured out how to turn it into 10 stores. Well, you still know how to do that. So if I was running a big retailer today, I would, in secret, without anybody knowing I was associated with it, start opening stores that challenge expectations, that threaten my core business, that cannibalize things, that uh, offend various people who have sinecures in the organization. And then once I figured out what was working, I would, quote, acquire them from myself and bring them to market. Because if you're not good at that part, going from one to a hundred stores, what are you good at? And I think where they're in trouble is every single time an innovation comes along that could make things better, they focus on what would make it worse. And then you have Christensen's innovator's dilemma really clearly laid out right there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I've seen it so many times where the fear, and actually Michael and I talked about this in the first episode about Sears, was that so much of what kept Sears stuck was that the ideas that would have really made a difference over the long term largely cannibalized the core business. And so in the mm-hmm. uh, spirit of trying to protect that, uh, they basically slowly became irrelevant. So I think that's a huge issue. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, Seth. You brought up Craftsman because, as Steve said, exactly we were talking about that thing. Because it, what I loved about the conversation was Steve wasn't a casual observer; he was in the process. And um, so, to get that kind of insider out view of of what we observe from many organizations was a real uh, real treat. So, you listen, I've been listening here. I almost forgot I was on a podcast. It was just such a fascinating conversation. I want to pick up on a couple of threads, Seth, of something you mentioned. You get your insights or observations, you talked about ketchup. And an interesting thing happened in ketchup here in Canada. The Heinz group decided to source their tomatoes somewhere else in a pretty major decision. And lo and behold, French has stepped in uh, with their ketchup, who had been a long second run, and swept the market. So you talked about salsa and ketchup, but I, I found it was interesting that a brand could be nationalistic. And I wonder if you know, we, we talk a lot these days whether it matters where and how things are made. What's what's your your view of that? Has anything changed over the time? And and you know, we haven't really talked about the COVID era yet, and your observations of of what may, if anything, change. But I want to get your kind of use that as an example to get your thoughts on on the concept of of local, the concept sure. of how people buy, and then the concept of has everything. 
has anything changed or will anything change in, in thanks to the COVID era? So it sounds like Heinz had a new Coke moment in Canada, which mm-hmm. I missed. Um, so let's, let me use new Coke cause I have a, a little bit more of a handle on that, but it's probably related to the same conversation. Pepsi, John Scully, the person who almost wrecked Apple was running Pepsi and he realized that in taste tests, they outperformed Coke cause it was sweeter. They just kept running these taste test ads and it was really bothering the people at Coke. And so Coke decided to flank Pepsi by reformulating a flavor of Coke that would outperform Pepsi in taste tests. And they launched new Coke, which is widely understood as the worst marketing debacle outside of politics in American history. What happened there? Well, what they failed to understand at Coke, a place, a a brand that 20% of the people in the South drink for breakfast is that no one does taste tests of ketchup or Coke, that it is a placebo that what we buy when we buy it is a story, a story about our mom, a story about tradition, a story about this is who I am. So New Coke was a really, really bad idea because they changed what they sold. The word new does not belong next to the word Coke. What they could have done is over the course of three years changed the formula so that three years from now, Coke would have tasted differently than it tastes now and no one would have noticed because it would have led them to beating Pepsi and taste tests. And it's still, because taste buds aren't particularly specific, people would have think it would still tasted like Coke. So in Heinz's case, I'm guessing the problem wasn't that the ketchup tasted different. It was that they made an announcement. And their announcement was, that thing you buy because it represents tradition and your childhood isn't the same anymore. Mm, And one of the challenges that so many retailers have particularly as they try to regroup for the post-COVID Amazon owns 10% of the world mindset is, am I shopping here? Because I've always shopped here. Because if that's the reason I'm shopping here, changing it isn't going to help you. That's why the sign under new management is so bizarre. Because if I like the old place, I don't like the fact that it's under new management. And if I didn't like the old place, I'm not sure under new management is enough reason to try. Mm. So, there's going to be, I think, a rebirth of shopping as sport, as shopping as story acquisition. And the thought that I'm shopping here because I have no choice, I'm shopping here because it reminds me of the world in 2008, I don't feel like that's a growth area going forward. Steve tells me you've got a new book coming out, The Practice. Uh, what's that about? Let's, uh, that's an exciting announcement for many. And, and tell us a little bit about the book. It's about shipping creative work, and it's at the heart of uh, what Steve is trying to talk to the world of retail about, which is we're not getting paid to move a box from point A to point B. That is a commodity now. What we're getting paid to do, what we want to do, what thrills us is to ship creative work. It has nothing to do with painting. It has to do with making something that might not work, something generous, something human, and then bringing it to the market. And I don't believe that's a talent. I don't peop- believe people are born with it. I think it's a skill. I think it's choice. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that we can create circles of people who will support each other as we try to rebuild um, from this period we're all going through mm-hmm. so that we can get to a place where we're actually making things better. And too often we've been indoctrinated 
indoctrinated by a society that's about industrialism and about caste into judging situations and people incorrectly. And we're trying to unindoctrinate. But to do that is scary because it means taking responsibility and saying, I made this. Mm -hmm. And that's been sort of my mission for 20 years, but this puts a sharp point on it. Well, I can't think of a point in time where more people are thinking about change and changing the way things do. I mean, if there's any upside from all of this, it is, it's like been a, a big circuit breaker on consumer habits and, and our thought patterns. So maybe, maybe that's in the long run, something that positive that comes out of this, uh, this experience. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we should underestimate uh, the status quo. The status quo sticks around because it's professional at sticking around. If it wasn't, it would mm. be gone. Mm. And I don't think we should underestimate the power of industrialism. Every person alive today has lived their entire life in an industrial regime where the goal was to make it faster and cheaper, not to make it better and not to make it more human, but to do the opposite. Mm. And if we look at what happens, for example, on Amazon, left to its own devices, the market tends to settle on average crap. Mm. And that doesn't mean you have to make it. It just means there's going to be a lot of it. And it turns out, though, the race to the bottom is fraught because you might win or worse, come in second. And the alternative is not to sell as much, not to be in the business of mass, but to matter. And I still believe that work that matters for people who care is a way forward. And if you want to make your living being in this thing we call retail, I think every day you need to remind yourself of that sign that was hanging over Walmart when I went to give a speech there in 1999. 21 years ago, they had a sign on their headquarters that said, you can't out Amazon, Amazon, and you can't. <laughs> well, I think uh, that's probably a great place to end. Thanks so much, Seth, for that, for coming on. And um, can't wait to see your book and read it. Thanks, man. I appreciate both your time. Keep making this ruckus. Thank you. Sir. Yeah, Seth, it's been, it's been a real treat for me as well. And, and uh, it really adds to our, to our thoughts about uh, being remarkable. So, uh, A, a, a real treat to meet you. And, and thanks again. Thank you both. Well, you know, listen, Steve, you, you know, for a while I was I was uh, forgetting that I was recording a podcast. I was listening to the two of you. It was fascinating, um, you know, hearing Seth and, and you talk about uh, this intersection of his work and your work. And from that, it feels like, you know, what you took away from insights and, and knowing and reading his work and, and talking to him is is really somewhat of a framework around this remarkable idea. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think he he really coined the phrase remarkable, at least in the context that others have used it and, and I use in the book and in my work. Um, so you know, he really did clue me into how choices were expanding so radically, uh, as we talked about by virtue of the internet largely and how attention and time were becoming more scarce. And that just really sets up this, this battle for attention uh, fundamentally, but also uh, this battle for engagement and loyalty and all the things that, that sustain businesses over time. I mean, he really started his work, as he described, thinking first about, you know, the interruption or the, you know, the inefficiency or the lack of performance around interruption marketing. And, and it, it really did resonate, you know, it started in, in his mind, I think in mass media and advertising, but and marketing, but it really did 
extend its way across all formats and just, you know, our thinking. And, and certainly I see it reflected in your thinking that, you know, you just can't do what you did before. And I guess that's what it circles back to this, to this chapter, the end of scarcity, because attention is, you know, the uh, convenience good is, is no longer good enough. And, and all these things kind of circle back to being a uh, remarkable standing out and just, you know, from his purple cow uh, essence, which is you've got to be different. It, it is not good enough to be a better version, as you said, of, of average. Yeah. And I think people um, or leaders in retail, so many of them still don't seem to really get how important it is mm. to differentiate yourself in a much more powerful way. You know, it's such a cliche to talk about lipstick on the pig or whatever, but yeah. you know, a lot of what, it, what counts for innovation with some legacy retailers is better than they were doing before, arguably, but not really close to being good enough. Uh, particularly when you think about, like I think about um, department store retailers or a lot of specialty apparel, but you can go across a litany of of categories that are large categories with large established players for the most part. And even though we've seen some some uptick, for example, in grocery during the COVID crisis because people aren't eating out and there's a shift. Mm -hmm. but fundamentally, over the long term, the grocery business is not growing, right? The apparel business is not growing. Home improvement tends to cycle a little bit with interest rates and new home sales and, and things like that. But, but for the most part, these big categories aren't dramatically growing. It's hard to find categories that are growing much faster than inflation. And so, particularly for the established brands, it's about market share. It's share of wallet. And so, what are you going to do that is significant enough for the profitable, loyal customers of your competitors to switch to you? And if you think that's putting a coffee bar in or uh, some cool visual merchandising, um, you know, it's very, very unlikely that's that's going to move the dial at all. It'll be it'll be notable, if not exceptional. I, you and off you and I off mic were talking about the Nordstroms in New York City, where the you know the ground floor at a at a cocktail bar, and you could walk around choosing your your shoes uh, or watching your partner choose their shoes um, with a glass of whiskey in your hand. Certainly interesting but um you know is it enough to to push that story forward so you know again what i what i love about this series is in these first couple of episodes we're kind of discovering or talking about the issue but uh, i wanted to remind everyone that as we move forward you've got a framework to create remarkable so um you know you mentioned it earlier just before the seth interview that you know some things in your framework are effectively table stakes but then there's a couple of real things that you differentiate so uh, just a um, great looking forward to continued episodes as we as we start with exploring the kind of issues and then with some guests and then uh, move to exploring uh, solutions which is what i fundamentally loved about the book was that it, it is not a chronicle of woe or history or challenges but actually provides you know real solutions that you could you could work with well all right let's leave it there special thanks to our guest seth godin for being on this episode of the remarkable retail podcast if you like what you heard, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Please rate and review, and be sure and recommend to a friend or colleague in the retail brand or CPG industry. I'm Steve Dennis. You can learn more about me on stephenpdennis.com, and be sure and look for me on LinkedIn and Twitter for my latest insights. 
And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice Retail Podcast. You can learn more about me on meleblanc.co. Have a safe week, everyone, and Steve will talk to you next week. Sounds good.